It's a new year starting today, a day full of optimism and hope. It's a time when some make New Year's resolutions. We hope to remain steadfast and with this new start, that we'll keep up these resolutions, these habits. But we know, even in this great time of optimism, that from past year's experience, life brings us opportunities and challenges that tend to upset our resolutions, our best plans. Wouldn't it be nice to know what's going to happen this year? What will happen? What will we become? Will I maybe even be drawn closer to Christ this year? In fact, we know from God's living word, without a doubt, from the scriptures, that what will happen for those of us who are in union with Christ Jesus. As we walk through this new year, we may fall and we may fail, but Christians can know that Christ is praying for us. He will restore us each time we fall. He will lead us into repentance, and he will use us for his kingdom work. There's a promise you can take home. Let's open our hearts and our minds this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 22, just a few verses, verses 31 to 34. And as a reminder, as you're turning there, uh, Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician probably converted by the missionary work of the Apostle Paul. He was not a disciple during the time of Christ, which means that he wrote the gospel through interviews with eyewitnesses upon eyewitnesses. Luke was, even the secular historians note this, Luke was a top-notch historian. The ways he gathered in and relayed information show us that he had a tremendous knack for research and attention to detail. This morning, we're looking at the final stages of Luke's gospel, reaching the end of our Lord Jesus's earthly ministry. We're in the last 24 hours of Christ's life on earth. Here's what's going to happen in the next few hours after this scene that we'll look at this morning. He'll be arrested. He'll be tried in a kangaroo court and sentenced to death. And finally, he will be crucified between two criminals. So one of the things I want to draw your attention to is what our Lord's been doing in these last few days. He has not been crossing things off of his bucket list. He is teaching and preaching relentlessly. He's preparing his disciples because they need to grow. They need to be strong because a change is coming. Thus far, all of the arrows of the enemy have been focused directly towards Christ, but soon Christ will be gone. He will be ascended to heaven, and the disciples will be the ones being persecuted and arrested and hated by all. And so one of the things our Lord's doing in these final days is speaking truth to them, and at times that truth is very hard truth. That's what he's about to do with the Apostle Peter here in this morning's scene. Peter's sort of the leader of the Apostles. He's certainly the most talkative of the Apostles, and he has said said the most stuff so far among them, as recorded in Scripture, 
and sometimes the most ridiculous stuff. He's even at times corrected our Lord Jesus. Peter's living proof of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, that says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Let's look now at God's word in Luke 22, focusing on those few verses, 31 to 34. This is the word of our Lord speaking. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Grass withers and the flowers fade, and the word of our God stands forever. There's a great cosmic battle going on. It's depicted for us in Revelation 12. The battle is ultimately between Christ and Satan. And what we know is that Christ has already won the victory through his resurrection and ascension, but still Satan makes it his purpose to attack God's people. We see it today, as we do in Luke's gospel, that God is victorious in all things. In fact, we see today that God uses all things, even Satan's plans and ploys, to be a blessing to God's people and to build up his kingdom. Martin Luther used to say that the devil is God's devil. He can only accomplish what God permits. And no matter his schemes, God is always one step ahead of him. That's what we're going to see this morning. It begins with our Lord warning Peter that you're going to be caught in the midst of a spiritual war and attacks that are going to come fast and furious. It's as if Jesus is is saying to Peter, you are going to fall, but I will sustain you. And these very attacks are going to be so difficult and so painful. I will use them for your good to make you useful for my kingdom. Let's look at three points here. They're written in your bulletin outline, the outline. Satan's plan, number one. Number two, Jesus' promise. And number three, Peter's purpose, which will be our purpose also. Look with me first at Satan's plan. In verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, when our Lord says, behold, a command, it's our Lord speaking to captivate Peter's attention because he's about to give a warning. And the warning is this, Peter, Satan has his sights set upon you. Now, who is Satan? Satan was an angel, but he was an angel that beheld the glory of God, and he grew jealous. And in his jealousy, he rebelled. Not just him, but also a third of all of the angels rebelled with him. And in seeking to exalt himself, Satan was brought low, powerless to do any harm against God, But he is still opposed to God at every turn and to God's people. 
Satan's power was greatly diminished by Christ's victory on the cross. But his jealousy of the glory of Christ was not diminished one bit. So he knows he cannot hurt God, but he turns his attention to the ruin of God's people. We're reminded of the first part of this verse in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And the chief ambition that Satan has in pursuing Peter is to not permit Peter to bring glory to Christ. Now, how are we to understand Satan's request to sift Peter? It reminds us that Satan must always live within the bounds of God's sovereignty. He may not do anything which God does not permit. As we're going to see later, his best effort only becomes a part of the perfect plan of God. Satan, no matter how much he hates the glory of God, is always overruled and overpowered so that even through his best efforts, the glory of God is seen even more clearly. Christ says here, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Now let's consider a southern translation of the Bible that instead of saying you, Satan wants to sift you, Peter. It would say y'all in the second person plural. Really, that's what this should say. That Jesus isn't just talking to Peter here, but Satan wants to sift y'all. Satan's desire is to sift you all like wheat. This is not the first time we've seen a request like this. You remember in the book of Job, in the very first chapter, Satan appears before the throne of God. And he says, this Job, summarizing, this Job, let me put some pressure on him, and I will show you that his faith is not genuine. And of course, Job's faith was not only proven genuine, but it was strengthened through the testing. Here, Satan's desire was to show that Peter the so-called leader of the apostles, is a phony, that his faith is not sincere. Now, this is not so much an attack upon Simon, upon Peter, as it is upon Simon's God. Christ's warning should have been to, to Peter very humbling experience. It's as if Christ is saying, Peter, this ancient being who is far fuller of power and malice than you can imagine, he desires to destroy you. Look at Peter's response. He doubles down in verse 33. On one hand, you have to appreciate his optimism, but it's blind. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now, it's an ironic statement that later he would go to prison and to death, but he wasn't ready at this point. And you'll see as this plays out, Christ's prediction of Peter's betrayal will be fulfilled in perfect accuracy in just a few hours. Peter did deny knowing Christ at all three times. 
Did the devil make him do it? Can Peter say, well, it's not my fault. Jesus, you're the one who told me that Satan wanted to sift me. Brothers and sisters, the devil cannot make you do anything. He can appeal to those areas of lives, our lives where we are vulnerable, where we're looking to anything and everything other than Christ for our security, our salvation, and eternity. In Judas's case, it was money. He appealed to Judas for riches. In the life of David, it was Saul's jealousy of David that Satan took hold of. In Peter's case, it's tremendous pride. What is pride? Pride is a foolish sense of self-sufficiency. Just look at Peter's response. No, not me. I'll never abandon you. And Peter, at that point, is ripe for the picking. In fact, look at the text in Luke 2 right before our passage today in verses 24 to 27. There's an argument that the disciples have been participating in. What is it, this argument? Which one of us is the greatest? It doesn't tell us what role Peter played in that argument. But it makes sense that Christ, immediately following that argument, begins with Simon, Simon. It appears at the very least that maybe Peter seems to think he's the greatest of the twelve. He may have even been the one that is boasting that he's the greatest of the apostolic band. His overconfidence put him right square in the middle of Satan's crosshairs. That's why I find it kind of peculiar in verse 31. You remember earlier, Peter's given name was Simon, but Jesus had given him a new name. And Jesus, it was Peter, which means stable, steady rock. But Jesus doesn't call him Peter here. He calls him by his natural name, Simon, because Peter is full of his own natural pride. We need to pay attention to this. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of the Christian life, and it's the inroads for Satan at every turn we make as we walk. One of the things we need to realize is the devil's not interested in promoting rampant wickedness Not at all. He's just as interested in a proud, church-going, self-sufficient moralist as he is the drug addict on the street. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in the mid-1900s, was a pastor at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said, what would happen if the devil took over Philadelphia? If Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed and pristine streets would be filled with friendly pedestrians that smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. But the gospel would not be preached. Because of the sense among people of self-sufficiency, because people felt they had their lives together, The devil doesn't care if we're a proud moralist. 
or strung out drug addicts. As long as we do not see our need for Jesus. This serves as a warning to each of us because it reminds us that Satan only can enter into the doors that we leave open. He's always present. He's always active. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. Scripture tells us this. And if we're not careful, if we're not watching our own lives, he'll take advantage of areas of carelessness in our lives and secret sin that we have. And he'll always take you further than you want to go. He will cost you more than you want to spend. And he'll steal from you far more than you have to give. That was Satan's plan in Peter's life. And it's his plan in our lives. And so for Christ to say to Peter and to say to you and me, Satan has desired to sift you, that ought to be a terrifying and chilling thought. In fact, if the text ended there, it would be downright terrifying. So there's Satan's plan. Let's look at the second point in your outline here. Although Satan had a plan, Jesus has a promise. Immediately after he'd warned Peter in verse 31, Jesus says in verse 22, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Interestingly, Jesus is using the singular you here. Peter, he says, I know you. I know your weaknesses. I know your frailties. You have to trust my promise that I have prayed for you, even though I know you're about to fall and fail. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He knows us that way. Better than we know ourselves, really. That he would be so kind to pray for struggling, awful sinners, me being one of the greatest. Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, you know, Peter, God helps those who help themselves. He didn't say that. So all you need to do is get your life in order, and then you can be useful. His heart breaks for this pitiful Peter, and what does Christ do? He prays for him. You can ask, do you have any doubt, Rich, that God heard that prayer from Jesus? Certainly he did, certainly. And beloved, Christ prays for his followers This morning, now, and in the minutes to come. In these prayers of Christ, as if he's saying to each one of us, I have prayed for you this morning in this new year. He's not talking about an empty-hearted, rote-filled prayer that we say when we stub our toe on a door jam. Or when we drift off to sleep. This language of praying in the original language is pleading, urgently asking, and begging the Father for each of you. Isn't it amazing that the one through whom God has given us access in Christ, that he himself is praying to the Father on our behalf? Isn't that amazing? 
Let that sink in for just a minute. Christ in the throne room of God at this very moment is praying for his people. Let me illustrate this from Scripture. Look with me, if you remember from adult Sunday school, back in Romans chapter 8. These are words that are meant to comfort the Roman church that's beginning to feel the weight of persecution. And Paul asks this question in verse 33 of Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding, present tense, interceding for us. He is intervening. He's praying for us personally and perpetually. And will his prayers go unanswered? Certainly not. Look with me also at Hebrews for a second in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The author in Hebrews makes the argument that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system of sacrifices. And he tells us in Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. What's that mean? There were a whole lot of priests because once they hit a certain age, they either retired or they died. So they couldn't continue to pray for you. But he goes on, the author does, in verse 24, he, talking about Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He was raised from the dead. He holds this position forever. Consequently, it says in verse 25, he is able to serve to the uttermost those who draw near to God because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's us, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we often speak about the finished work of Christ on the cross at Calvary when he said, it is finished. But we don't often talk about the ongoing work of Christ. What Hebrews and Romans are talking about, that our Lord constantly intercedes for his people perpetually. There's good news for 2023. It's been his promise to strengthen the saints through the years. Draw your attention to Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish minister in the early 1800s. And he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. He is praying for me and you, not in the next room, but right here with us, in us through the Holy Spirit. John Knox said when he was very old and weary and ill, near death, he would read Jesus' prayers for the saints in John chapter 17, in verses 20 to 25, and it would bring him new life. It would raise his spirit such that it caused him to want to pray anew, pray afresh, and pray constantly. Mary, Queen of Scots, she was John Knox's enemy. And she said, I, feel his, I fear his prayers more than I do my enemies. Yet it was not John Knox's prayers that were so powerful. It was Christ's prayers that were so powerful. 
And that same Christ prays for you and me today. This is so important for Peter to hear in chapter 22 and for the disciples because in the next 24 hours of their lives, they're going to be caught in a, up in a whirlwind struggle of the heart. Forces so much of darkness were going to be lined up against them. There was only going to be one thing that stood between them and the powers of evil, and that was the prayers of Jesus Christ. And beloved, the same is true today. It's the Lord Jesus who promises to pray for us, to stand between us and the forces of evil. Notice what Christ prays. Jesus says, I have prayed for you, not that the trial would end. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Hear that again. He prays that your faith will not fail. The Greek word, eklepo, is the root word in English of our word, eclipse. That means to disappear or abandon. In an eclipse, you know that one thing passes in front of the other to obscure it. The object of our Lord's prayer here is that Peter's faith might not be overcome or eclipsed. Even in his temptations, even in his failures, even after his boasting, even though he was weak for a short time and failed. Christ prayed specifically for Peter's faith because that's exactly what was under attack. You know, the greatest dangers that you and I face is not a loss of our life. It's not a loss of our health. It's not a loss of our wealth. Our greatest trial is unbelief. That we would not trust the promises of God in the midst of affliction and trial. If you're in financial difficulty... What does Christ pray for you? That your faith may not fail. If you're in the midst of a chronic health condition, what does Christ pray for you? He prays that your faith may not fail. If you're in the midst of a relationship that's hanging on by a thread, what does Christ pray for you? He prays that your faith may not fail. How do we enter into a new year? Full of unknowns, certainly optimism, but full of unknowns by knowing that Jesus Christ has prayed for you and he has prayed for me and we can boldly step forward to serve him. Jesus goes on to assure Peter what he has prayed for will come to pass. Will not our great high priest's prayers go unanswered? Look at verse 32. It says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Turned again is the word in Greek called stepho. It literally means to turn around. It's indicative of the word repentance. Jesus is speaking of Peter being brought to repentance after denying Christ Spiritually speaking, the idea here is to turn away from sin. A definite change of mind that leads to a definite change of direction that leads to a change in our lives. 
What's the difference here between Peter and Judas? Have you ever thought about that? Their sins varied by degree, varied by severity, but ultimately both of them were tempted with unbelief. Underneath the non-repentance of Judas and under the repentance and faith of Peter are the prayers of our Savior, Jesus. We don't understand how, at all times, we stand in need of the intercession of Jesus. Self-sufficiency plagues us. We don't understand that he's pleading in the Father's ear to keep us from sin, to keep our hearts soft, to keep our faith from falling. He is ever leading, ever living to intercede for us. Because the one thing that stands between us and the extraordinary power of Satan is the far more extraordinary power of the prayers of Christ Jesus. Especially as we endure trials, we need to remember that Christ is praying for us. This is really where we see the beauty of the plan of God on display here. What Satan designed for Peter's destruction, God designed for Peter's growth and sanctification. God excels at sanctifying his people. You and me, brothers and sisters. Making his people like himself, adding to our lives, to our circumstances, whatever it is that we need in order to grow in godliness. And he brings it into our life in perfect doses. Part of what he does through affliction is he delivers us from our self-sufficiency and our pride. It's most often through trials that Christ transforms us from clinging to ourselves to clinging to him. Oftentimes we don't understand how amazing grace is. We can sing the song, but to fully realize those words until we've seen the depths of our own sin. Jesus says to Peter, when you have turned again. The words of the Lord Jesus are not, if you repent, but when you repent. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, describing him. We have an advocate who pleads before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the only one who is truly righteous. Let's look at the third point of our outline here at Peter's purpose. This is a wonderful picture of the grace of Christ. He says to Peter, you're going to be sifted. It's going to be difficult. You're going to fail. You're going to turn. And when you do, you will finally be useful to me. What will Peter's ministry be as he goes on? Having been prayed for, having repented, having turned around, is Peter's ministry going to be to put a spotlight on himself? To be the greatest, to be the center of attention, like what the disciples were arguing about? You know, Christ says here, your duty is to strengthen your brothers Think of the beauty of this, the irony of the scene. Peter has just been arguing with his brothers about who is the greatest. 
Your job is to strengthen them, not to be the greatest. That word strengthen means to help them grow in the Christian faith. You know, sometimes we have to go through the sifter before we can strengthen others. Our pride needs to be broken, and our faith needs to be proven before we're much good for God or for our brothers and sisters. One commentator said, He who has been through deep waters has the experience to help him be a help to others. The text shows us the magnificence of God's grace. To hear Christ say here, I'm paraphrasing, you're going to blow it, Peter. This is one they're going to talk about for at least 2,000 years. But guess what? I will restore you, and I will make you useful. It is in your failures that you will find purpose. Now let me ask you, by the way, there's a mirror up here that I'm looking at me to. Do you fit in this category? Have you failed? Do you have some part of your life that you deeply regret? Perhaps it was a great moral failure or some periods of struggles or addiction or suffering through sickness. Perhaps it was a long period of time where you were not faithful to Christ or to his church. Or perhaps you got a late start. You've spent your whole life apart from Christ. And just in recent years, you're starting to seek him. Do you have cause to struggle like this, thinking, well, because of the past failures of mine, I cannot be useful to God. It's exactly in those things that we become most useful to him. In our repentance, in our turning, it's in those things that we become most useful to the kingdom work. Your identity is that you are one with him, and he looks at you, and you have trusted in him, and he says to each one of you, now go strengthen your brothers. Go disciple other people. Go invest in other people's lives. It's so incredible here looking at Satan's best efforts, Satan's plan to pull Peter away, and he used God did, used it to bring Peter closer than ever to himself. Satan plotted to obscure God's glory through Peter's failure and through my failures and through yours. And miraculously, it's just through these failures that you and I can see God's glory most clearly. What a great God we serve. This text is uh, ripe with application. So I want to give you several practical pieces of application. Here's the, what do we do with this? Number one, we need to understand the importance of humility in the Christian life. If a leading apostle can fall and fail, so can you and I. Hugh Martin, he was a Scottish theologian in the mid-1800s, said the great lesson from this text is a warning against self-confidence. Speaking of the text, he says, we hear echoes of let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Satan attacked Peter 
where Peter thought most highly of himself. Every Christian will pass through stages of foolish self-confidence. God's intent through trials and tribulations, afflictions, and sometimes even our failures is not to make you great, but to make you and me small, that you might see him as great, and that he may be great to you and through you. Second, never assume that you or anybody else is above any sin. When Jesus warned them in the upper room that one of the disciples would betray him, the disciples looked around and said, not me. No, not me. They seemed shocked that any of them would do such a thing. When Jesus warned Peter that Peter would deny him, Peter obviously did not believe it. Friends, you are not above the capacity for any sin. If not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, every sin, every sin could find root in your heart. Third, Peter shows us our desperate need of self-awareness. Peter simply cannot see what he is like. Ever thought about that with you? I can't see my own blind spots. Peter can't see how proud he is. He doesn't know himself at all. But Jesus could see. If you and I were there, we could have seen that Peter's desire for, his, for approval, his pride, his insecurity, we'd have seen it. Peter, you just desperately need to see yourself as you really are. You and I do too. Most of us don't see who we really are. That's why we need each other. We need to hear what Scripture says about you and me. In Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me to know my ways. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Fourth, let's talk about New Year's resolutions. Happy New Year. There are folks who will say, it's a new year, it's a new opportunity. It does feel good to have a fresh start, doesn't it? And so we'll make resolutions, some like, I'm going to read God's word more. I'm going to be more faithful in church. These resolutions are good things. But you know, you've got to do more than just that. If you and I want to be more faithful to Christ... It's going to involve, just as Peter needed in this passage, a turning away. A turning away from those old go-tos, things that you've placed your identity in. The old activities that have occupied your time. If you have resolved, like me, to read God's word more in this new year, I need to turn away from those things that distract me from the glory and the honor and the praise that is only due to Christ Jesus. You got to pluck out, I do, the old idols that have stolen my affections. They only belong to Jesus. Final application, I promise this is the last one. If you've heard nothing else 
and you are a Christian, dear brother and sister, hear this. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Peter was oblivious. Sometimes you and I are oblivious. We're oblivious to our own danger. But Christ intercedes for us. And in your moments of trial and temptation, the things that otherwise might make you anxious and scared, Jesus Christ has already been pleading for you before the Father. He ever lives to pray for you. He will be praying for you in this new year. Take that home with you, beloved.